the Mirvana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Also, uh, recovered COVID patient. Yeah. Which yeah. is why we're outside in your backyard, so if people notice... Uh, Squirrels bombing acorns. Long-time listeners will recognize this phenomenon. That's right. <laughs> this isn't our first rodeo back here. We, ha- we have, uh, it's, it's acorn season in the backyard. And <laughs> you will hear them come down like, and they, they, they leave shrapnel. They hit hard. You, I've swept up here because that's the kind of guy I am. But if you look around, you'll notice there's shrapnel, yeah. acorn shrapnel. And in your backyard is the world's biggest oak tree. So. Yeah, it is. It's actually my neighbor's yard, but it covers, it's like right on the edge. It's so. your neighbor's tree, but it's your yard. Right. Uh, how you been? Speaking of COVID, I mean, uh, well, in in the irony of life, I got my third booster, the new made Bi- bivalent made, booster. Yeah, the made for Omicron booster. Uh, the day before, <laughs> you got exposed. I sat with my pestilent friend for six hours in the basement playing uh, playing games, and he was a super spreader, and we all got sick. So one day, one day, did everyone in the gaming group get sick? Basically. Uh, it was it's a it's a little offshoot and so we only had it was Joe and three other people and one of them uh, had just gotten over it and uh, so he did not get it uh, but Sean and antibodies. I Sean and I were down and, and uh, there well, you go that's a drag I'm sorry to hear it but I'm glad you're back on your feet that also explains our prolonged absence it's true I had a, I think that the important thing is to note that I had an extremely mild case yeah almost asymptomatic so. yeah well you've been uh, boosted and boosted and now boosted so. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Keeps, your, keeps your antibodies up. I'm getting the bivalent booster next week. It's a good thing. So hopefully you're no longer infectious. I am going to be in four days. See, there you go. Ooh, they're coming. Getting close. Good thing you got this umbrella in both us. Uh, I know it. <laughs> uh, what, what day is today? We're recording on a, win- on a Friday. Friday. Yep. On Tuesday, I fly to uh, Elsund. I don't know if I may be pronouncing that totally in- inaccurately. Uh, Norway. Going to speak at a a festival of farmhouse brewing, and that's so awesome. yeah, so that's why I got mine early because I wanted to be, yeah. you know, completely impervious to all COVID. Well, and basically, you are now. Now I'm like ultra got, impervious. Exactly, you've got everything you need. So go fly away, take your mask off, have fun. That's right. Uh, that's exciting. I'll be looking forward to hearing about it. When yeah, return. A, a long time listener, it's not even that long time. We'll know that earlier this year I went and I was in Voss. Well, this is another region called Hornendal. Uh, and they make beer slightly differently there. So I'll come back with, with tales of different farmhouse brewing traditions in, in uh, Norway. What part of Norway is this? It's western Norway, uh-huh. uh, just like Voss is in western Norway, uh-huh. but it's further north. Uh-huh. And if you look on the map, it looks like it's not very far away, but it's like a 10-hour uh, train ride if you're in Voss uh, to get up there. So it's, it's, re- wow. <laughs> it's just really hard to get around. Uh, you, you're not quite up to the Arctic Circle, are you? No, it's it's not that far up. Okay. But, um, but you got to go up and around and down and up and yeah. down and up and down. And <laughs> I think it's like halfway between Trondheim and Bergen if yeah. you look at a map. So. All right. Well, via uh, con Dios. Yeah. Thank you. Do that. Uh, what else is new? Um, well, we're change of seasons we're having an unseasonably warm uh almost it's almost october and it's gonna be 85 degrees tomorrow so that's going on yeah yeah 
we do have to do our, our weather report. Um, <laughs> Good Lord, you weren't you weren't <laughs> you weren't exaggerating. <laughs> I know they're like they're like coming down like yeah uh, like raindrops. That's definitely a, a squirrel because all coming in the same place. So yeah. he he's got a hold he's of them. Up he's there. checking them down. Yeah, uh, I've seen a lot of squirrels in my front. In fact, one squirrel left. He 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 cracked open the husk of the nut on my front porch and left it and then took off. Oh, yeah. And then went and buried the nut on my thing. I got a million. Like, of dude, clean up. See, clean there's up some right yourself. there. I, I tried to clean off as much as I could, but <laughs> there's some right there. Anyway, yes, the weather, and it's going to get warm and sunny again for an extended period. So, yeah, uh, more global warming. Woohoo! Fun yeah. with global warming. And how about you? What have you been up to? We haven't done this in a while. Yeah, uh, the semester has begun, so I'm back at Oregon State teaching classes. Um, actually, I'm not at... Uh, physically there because uh, the only class I'm teaching this fall is a uh, uh, e-campus as we call it an online class so I'm teaching on the internets yeah. my class uh, although I will be going down to or- Oregon State regularly meeting with graduate students and meetings and I'm sure that kind of stuff but uh, yeah but the, the fall school season is is uh, commenced so that means the household has changed radically from being two academics being a my wife's a teacher and I'm a professor and my son's a student and so that means in the summertime our household is is cash. I know and I barely <laughs> saw nice. you because you guys were you guys were roaming. It was a busy summer. We spent a big period in Maine uh, as we do sort of annually, semi-annually these days. Uh, we did a bunch of camping. Um, you had relatives. We had relatives come. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy packed uh, summer. So. Yeah. Very cool. Well, back to the grindstone. Back to the grindstone. So what is the grind today? (laughs) For the most of the 20th century, if you wanted to point to an actual American style of beer, you had to face San Francisco. Steam beer, a frontier concoction brewed fast for thirsty gold miners, became a signature of the city. Many breweries made it into the latter half of the 19th century, but they all died out, save one, the Anchor Brewery which was rescued from bankruptcy in 1965 and helped jumpstart craft brewing in America. Today, we tell the story. All that soon, but first, the news. Uh, If you have the good fortune to live in the United Kingdom, you might be able to buy a bottle of a faithful recreation of Gale's Prize Old Ale. Gales went out of business in 2006, and its Brett-aged Old Ale, one of the last two in the country, appeared lost. John Keeling, our old friend, Hi John. Uh, at Fuller's, managed to save some of the original barrels with the mixed culture and took it to London, but a recreation never really got off the ground until Henry Kirk, now working at sister brewery Dark Star, along with Fuller's, owned by Asahi, championed the beer. The current batch was made using the original inoculate and a recreation of the 1989 recipe. That's so, cool. It is really cool. This is a really important, impor- important, I guess, in scare quotes because nobody's ever heard of it in the United <laughs> States. But uh, this, you know, this, this tradition of making old ales, which we talked about recently when we uh, interviewed Gareth Young up in Glasgow, yep. was once just an enormous part of British brewing. And, mm-hmm. and it had you know, attenuated all the way down to Gales and uh, Green King and their, um, their wild. Uh, inoculated um, beer that, that we saw when we visited. Right. The, the triple X, which they turn into, um, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it. Something. 
a, blend, a blended version with ad fresh. Don't look at me, too. man. Yeah. Well, you were there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I think maybe if you, if you old me Suffolk, take... old Suffolk. That's what it's called. Oh, nice. <laughs> Way to pull that rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. I was gonna say my old mind doesn't even barely remembers. Actually, I remember the Green King Brewery pretty pretty well because it's pretty pretty awesome. I mean, it's a really interesting place. And then they've got the new the new bottling place that had. Yeah, anyway, we don't need so to get it. It was like it. a mile away. It's like a mile away, but connected by a whole pipe, a whole set of uh, overhead pipes. And it was in a floodplain in design, so it could flood and then, I don't oh, know, keep I, working or something. I hadn't remember the floodplain part. the floodplain. Nice. <laughs> uh, I was chuckling to myself about good fortune to live in the UK these days. Maybe not so right. much. Yeah. Let's see how this great economic plan takes, takes <laughs> off. Yeah. My yeah, mother and my sister, who are current residents of the UK, are a little concerned. The new the new PM has gotten off to a, a little bit of a rocky start, let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, okay, the next item comes from Chuck Slothauer. Sure. Okay. Functioning both as news and a mailbag item. I wanted to draw your attention to Merriam-Webster's edition of Sessionable to the dictionary. Sessionable of alcoholic beverages, colon, having a light body and lower than average percentage of alcohol. I think I tweeted this to you or texted you or something. Oh, did you? Yeah. I totally missed that. I think, I or didn't. maybe I just tweeted it out and that was why you miss it because you don't read anything I write. Well, uh, uh, which is my uh, little backhanded joke. Uh, Twitter, Twitter is a little bit hard to manage and so I miss some stuff on Twitter. Yeah. I confess. Anyway, Chuck, I saw this too. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how much that'll actually enter the lexicon. It's funny because it's one of these things where we chide brewers for using it, saying customers don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And yet, well, Merriam-Webster, so now we can use it now. And I think Merriam-Webster has a kind of baseline. It has, has to have a baseline level of of use in the language before they'll consider it including it. So I'm guessing that maybe it's a little bit more widespread than I thought. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to find my tweet, but it won't load. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I see you got that fancy, fancy new phone. If you had an old warhorse like mine, it would be awesome. <laughs> I don't know why this is completely. I got the spinning wheel of death uh, just staring me in the face. Anyway, in about 20 minutes, I'll uh, I'll, I'll circle back. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it suggests that perhaps uh, we're a little myopic and that sessionable is being used more frequently elsewhere because i think miriam webster kind of is conservative in that sense i think so they wait so so go ahead use sessionable brewers and now we all know and in fact why don't you brew more sessionable beers i would be happy if you did indeed yeah and to segue brilliantly we should discuss a sessionable beer today it's true it's like 4.9 percent i noticed yeah absolutely all right so i have (laughs) here this is the good sound effects in my little zipper cooler (laughs) Uh, two bottles of Anchor Steam procured just this morning. Awesome. From uh, local market Zupans. I've mentioned that in the past. They came through after a couple of misfire stops. Yeah, I went to two grocery stores yesterday, and nary a uh, an Anchor beer at all uh, was available. They didn't carry Anchor, which will will we'll loop. That's 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 what we call foreshadowing. At the yeah. end of the story, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Uh, this is in their new. Uh, labeling, which is a big bright yellow uh, label, which I knew I was looking for, so that helped. I saw yeah. it immediately because it is. It does pop. It does. Uh, although I, I um, was less happy with the overall branding scheme. Well, I thought they should lean into San Francisco a bit more, but whatever. It doesn't seem like it has 
Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, more foreshadowing. Right. Uh, yeah, so I got these just this morning. 4.9%, speaking of sessionable. So sessionable beer. Uh, my memory of this beer... Are we opening these? You got them out. I mean, yeah. wonderful well open. Sorry, I'm just kind of burying the, the prize here. We just open them. Uh, you open them as I... Here, you, uh, you I remember this as my first ever sort of craft beer when I was young. Sure. And not quite of age. Uh, and I remember it being like, feeling like it was impossibly strong. Right. Because it's diff- it was a lot different than the Pabst's and... and uh, Lining kugels that I'd grown up on. Well, at one time we we considered <laughs> anything. Talking about eighteen years old, I grew up on lining kugels till that point. If it wasn't pale, we assumed it was strong. I remember people used to always talk about yeah. Guinness being really strong, yeah, strongly flavored. Exactly. We're really dating. I missed here. I mistook flavor for. Here, I'm just gonna get it. Duncan Redmond, don't get it wet. Oh, it's a beautiful beer. It is a beautiful beer. A little bit dark. Uh, kind of, what? You have color vision. Amber what, what you red, it? you know, reddish amber, or right. amberish red. <laughs> no, it's uh, amber, but with a de- definite red tint. Uh-huh. It's got a nice, uh, creamy, very um, off-white head. Malt on the nose. Indeed. Very, very malty. Um, you were not able to find it. super fresh bottles, but. It's not a. It's a beer that ages pretty well, I think. Um, That's true. And because uh, it's not super hop forward, so we're not losing all that. Yeah, and I think it tastes. It's a little bit oxidized, but I think it's it's fine. It, it's yeah. A, it tastes. It, it's it's what I expected it to taste like. This was packaged um, uh, middle of May, and we're now at the end of September. So yeah, it's about four and a half months old, or three and a half. Uh, May, June, July, August, May. Four and a half. Four and a half. So yeah, it's a little bit oxidized, but yeah, you're right. It does actually stand up a bit more better than I had feared. It has that little dark bread crust quality, which I always associate with this. In a blind tasting, mm. that's what I would look for. That's what I would be going for, and it definitely has that. So that's good. Well, that's a good. Uh, that's a good shout. I I just think of it as sort of that bready malty. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. And then as it finishes, it goes goes to a really not not roast. You won't, don't want to say roast, but no. uh, like crisp bread crust crust thing. It's a good fall beer. Speaking of fall, it is. Here. It is. It's very acorns nice. raining down on us. Yeah, it seems an appropriate beer to be drinking right now. All right, so tell us about. Well, let's talk about this, and, and you can you can jump in. I'll just give the history. Um, <clears throat> the steam beer is a cool thing because it's this adaptive American beer style that started in San Francisco. Uh, it, this, of course, all of my information is taken from the blog post that I wrote about this. These are The series we do kind of comes from my blog post. Mm-hmm. Um, what This was shocking to me as a one-time Bay Area guy. Uh, in 1848, there were fewer than a thousand people in San Francisco. I know. And then in 1850, there were a hundred thousand people, which is just shocking. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm used to what those, those immigrant towns growing, but that's that's pretty impressive. That is pretty shocking. Even I'm shocked. Yeah. Knowing knowing a lot about the history of San Francisco, I'm shocked. So, of course, all those people there to get rich on the gold, in you know, mining gold. Um, but then there were a bunch of people who 
saw the opportunity in the the miners themselves. Yeah. People like Levi Strauss, who was like, hey, these miners need jeans. I'm going to make jeans. Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of German brewers uh, who had been immigrating in that great German migration, they looked at it and said, ooh, maybe I'll go out there and make beer for these folks. Yeah. The one thing about San Francisco that is different from the upper Midwest, where a lot of them landed, is there's there's not a lot of ice. And yeah. so uh, if they had gone to wisconsin for example like a lot of them did or the upper midwest they would have harvested a whole bunch of ice in the in the winter and landicules <laughs> exactly and put, and put it in caves over the summer just like they learned to do what in a callback that was All yeah right. there you are well remember that because that name is coming up again soon oh good yeah it was very nice uh but they they couldn't do that in um San Francisco because there's no ice to put in caves. Right. So instead, they just made their regular beer, uh, and instead of putting in caves, they just did it quick and dirty because so these instead miners, of fermenting at 60 degrees, 40, 45, 40, something 40. like that. Yeah, a little bit colder than that. Oh, really? Yeah, right. Yeah, 45 to 50. Let's oh, say okay. is good lager temperature. And then uh, you know, taking a month, they pitched it at ambient temperatures. Bang finished it out fast, gave it to those miners. Um, it was basically German beer. It was decoction mashed for the most part. The stuff, you know, in that second half of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, California, important note here, was an important uh, barley growing region, especially Northern California. Oh. Uh, and they also had hop fields. So a lot of hop fields, in fact. Uh, places like Hopland, California had, uh-huh. had hops. And so they were able to get a lot of local ingredients, which they were making these beers out of. And so this barley and hop uh, cultivation was happening prior to, well, in the late 1800s. Yeah, and more in the late 1800s. I think the, I'm not exactly sure what the first brewery was and how they managed to get, you know, barley and hops. Because Mm -hmm. at that point, um, there was not a lot of infrastructure. So I'm not exactly sure how how soon this filtered in. Right. Um, Well, anchor dates from 1896, so... At least by right. that point. So, um, jumping, yeah, jumping ahead. Uh, that that's right. They, they were founded in 1865, or I'm sorry, in uh, 1896. I'm just reading the label, man. And there and there were uh, at the turn of the century, according to Wall and Henius, uh, two scholars at the time, there were about two dozen breweries in San Francisco at that time. That so, um, by that time, somewhere between 1850 and 1896, uh, a giant industry arose. Right. Um, and then the name of the beer, which is an interesting, everybody's always wondered where that name comes from. Uh, some people speculate that it comes from a period of time when industrial techniques were coming and some of they were using steam power. Uh. But um, what Anchor suggests and, and others, and what I find the most plausible, is that they used cool ships to cool the beer off uh-huh. and a lot of times they would just have them on the on the top of the brewery uh-huh. uh, because it's San Francisco so it's always cold outside uh-huh. and they would steam uh-huh. and so the miners would look up there and say oh steam beer and that's where the name came from so that's that's possible uh, so Wallen Henius described it in 1902 these beer the that's a, that's a more poetic beer. story anyway so. absolutely uh, I'm going with that one I mean <laughs> if anyone asks that's the one <clears throat> that's the one I'm using no one knows so go with the best one yeah exactly that's the story <laughs> Uh, Wall, Wall and Heaney is, <clears throat> in their 1902 book, described uh, steam beer this way. It is largely consumed throughout the state of California. It's called steam beer on account of its highly effervescing properties and the amount of pressure steam it has in the packages. So that's another story. Uh, 
It is light in color, hop aroma, and bitter taste not very pronounced, very lively, and not necessarily brilliant. So, a simple beer, um, which, it, you know, if it had been too bad, if it had been too crude, if the breweries hadn't dialed in their processes, even though they were using lager yeast at, at warm temperatures, yeah, um, I think they would have mentioned that it was a bad beer. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm guessing this Anchor Steam is a little bit atypical in the fact that it's a, a product maybe of the of the um, uh, rising caramel malts. I mean, it seems darker than. I would imagine this description. Uh, yes, and I think that, that was that we're gonna we're gonna zoom forward to about eight, 1965. I, uh, <laughs> no, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> the first thing that happened is it became debased. So all the breweries had died off. All the steam breweries had died off. Mm-hmm. We're, now we're, we're zooming forward to 19, the 1960s. Refrigeration had come, so you could make lager if you wanted. You could. Uh, and the breweries, and you know, by the 1960s, uh, San Francisco was on its fourth or fifth, like, boomtown time. It was uh, starting to get hippies, and like, San Francisco is in a remarkable city in, in, the, yeah. in terms of the number of, of, of times it got waves of, of uh, American and foreign immigration and, and had booms and busts, and it was a working town, and this whole Silicon Valley thing is kind of a modern deal. It's always been a pretty working class city yeah. uh, up, up until very recently um so it was all down to just anchor was the only one that was left and it was about to go out of business and it was being made uh the beer was being made at that time consult my notes uh with sugar and caramel coloring oh lovely and it was um really inconsistent it was it had dwindled to just a few accounts uh and it was often sour and kind of gross and apparently the brewery uh when Fritz Maytag, the guy in 1965 who ended up buying it, when he described it, he said it was just filthy. It was just like this old rotting hull uh, that was totally dying. Consistent with the sour beer, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but Fritz Maytag was w- one of the, the scions to the Maytag uh, fortunes, the washer washing, people. Washing machine. Yeah. I think he's from, they're, they're from the Midwest somewhere. And he fell in love with the romance of this idea of this old brewery, and he decided to buy it. Uh, and he bought he bought it for five thousand uh, dollars in 1965, like weeks before it was going to get shuttered. Right. And that's forty eight thousand dollars in today's money, which is still pretty damn cheap yeah. if you can imagine buying an entire brewery for fifty grand. Um, and then he would end up buying the other forty nine percent three years later. And that included the. So you bought fifty one percent for five thousand. Yeah, that, that included the the building itself and the land it's on. I assume he bought the whole the whole yeah, kit which, caboodle, which, which yeah. also <laughs> tells you something. Astonishing now, yeah, San Francisco exactly it tells you something about what San Francisco is like. Yeah, um, he didn't know anything about beer. You know, he was just a guy. I can't remember. I've heard the story of why he was in San Francisco, and it's I mean cleaned up. It's a beautiful brewery. It's the, it they he he moved the brewery. I can't remember oh, okay. where it was, but that new the, the new new in 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 air quotes uh, brewery is one that he built. Uh, after he got this. I see. He didn't know anything about beer, uh, so he got involved in the Master Brewers uh, Association of America mm-hmm. and started hanging out with the old Master Brewers, and they were super fascinated that he would buy this little brewery and not know anything about beer because um, this was the moment of consolidation, so all little breweries were being closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he became friends with who? <laughs> Bill Leinenkugel. Bill Leinenkugel. There you are. Right. Uh, who kind of taught him how to brew and you know gave him 
given points, and he read Jean de Clerc, the famous Belgian uh, scientist, uh, his, his textbook of brewing, which is a super famous book, and he sort of figured out how to brew, and then he reformulated the recipe, and this is where I think we get to the, the modern period, which yeah. which takes us, which is one, it's, it's a classic because it's the last steam bear, but it's a classic also because it's the first American craft beer um, that that sort of set America on a on a new course, and here is where the caramel malts come from. Right. So up until this right. point, uh, American brewing was entirely German. Yeah, the books were still written in German. Like most of the brewers were still German. Like you know, over a hundred years after the first German brewers had started coming. Right. Uh, and so <clears throat> German brewing techniques were totally standard. Um, there was an industrial innovation, but basically we were a German brewing country, and. Fritz was sort of attracted to the British tradition, and so he reformulated it with pale malts and caramel malts, mm-hmm. which are not particularly, certainly weren't a particularly uh, uh, German thing. Right. Um, he used Northern Brewer hops, which was, it's grown in a lot in Germany now, it was originally an, uh, an English hop. Mm-hmm. And uh, he really formed the palate that would become the palate that all the home brewers who would come to his house and got in, or to come to his brewery and got inspired and he worked with them. And then pretty soon they were little, uh, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs, people like Ken Grossman would show up and, uh, to find out how, how you make a little business go. Who would go on to form Sierra Nevada. So who would go on to form Sierra Nevada. Um, and the backer and, uh, uh, all those guys would, you know, they, they made a, a pilgrimage down. In fact, uh, people outside of california like that's where the widmers went too the widmers went down they went they went and saw ken who had already started his brewery at that point mm-hmm. but they saw fritz too and he was really generous at his time and i think he he created the american palate by by reintroducing a beer that was much more in the british tradition a Br- british american as opposed to german american tradition yeah. so there you go that's kind of the the, the narrative of of steam beer so why you take a breath and you can talk well i was going to ask you so i'm going to make you talk some more but what is the uh, characteristic you get from uh, fermenting lager yeast at ale temperatures? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it was always something that people knew about when we first started drinking it. Um, they were really proud of that. But I don't think anybody really knows <laughs> how, you know, what, what yeast do to beer. And it's it's fascinating right now because we have this cold IPA phenomenon happening. Yeah. And I just talked to Kevin Davy not too long ago who invented cold IPA or invented the name cold IPA. And he mentioned that a ton of brewers, uh, American brewers, have been using lager yeasts for their uh, IPAs long before he started calling his cold IPA. Right. And the reason is it gives it a really clean, it gives it, instead, you can you can make it as fast as a nail, but if you use the right, you have, kind of have to use the right lager yeast mm-hmm. uh, because when you ferment warm it's going to uh, go fast but that can be bad because some lager yeast will kick off some some undesirables yeah uh, they'll kick off too much esters which is one thing you don't want so you, you want it you want one that's going to be clean or they'll kick off a lot of sulfur or other gunky stuff that you don't want so you got to have the right yeast strain which clearly anchor had I don't know where uh, Fritz got that if it was the same one that they, he'd been using forever. Yeah. Um, if 
it's a new one, but it's a clean yeast strain. So, you know, you, what you get here, and I think this is really interesting, what you get is this really clean flavor profile, right? Um, you don't get a ton of esters. It allows the, the malts and the, the hops to shine through, which is really nice because he made, you know, for, for the late 1960s, this would have been considered an incredibly flavorful beer, yeah. kind of shocking to people. And you really wanted the, the flavor of the malts and the hops to come out. Um, which would have been so shocking to people. What's interesting is that uh, we I just mentioned how Ken Grossman was really fascinated by this brewery. The yeast strain that Ken Grossman founded, the Chico strain, uh-huh. is famously neutral, right? right? So he, <laughs> yeah. he, he even followed down that road. He found it, it was an ale strain, but it was also something that would allow the, the malts and the hops to come through. So I think, I think you can look at this brewery is being really influential in, in a few ways and that's certainly a subtle one so it's just a cleaner profile yeah i don't you know aside from the fact that it's a great story i don't know that the production it matters so much in the production of the beer but right. um but it makes a great story so. it's interesting in how malt forward it is considering mm-hmm. what ken grossman would then do you mm-hmm. know 10 years later or whatever um right he was after the the flavor of the the hop and he really introduced malt. yeah the that whole hop flavor profile, but you can kind of see how this would be a, a starting point for that. Mm-hmm. You know, a neutral yeast and some, in this case, you know, a little caramel malt and a multi profile, but ready for some hops on top. Yep. And, you know, one of the things, if you, you could still buy Sierra Nevada Pale, we'll probably do a making the classic of Sierra Nevada at some point. Um, it's a very caramely beer. That caramel quality, that flavor of caramel, I think is, it is familiar, right? It, we, Caramel is a really familiar flavor yep. to Americans, so yep. put that in the beer. Uh, it's it's very robust and doesn't taste like beer, but it tastes like something familiar. So that's a nice bridge for a consumer who's trying to figure out how to enjoy a beer that tastes weird. So I think all of that kind of stacks up and makes sense. Uh, you mentioned here that they use fermenters, uh, which are somewhere between an English square and a cool ship. Yeah, so open fermentation. It, they're no, they're um, they're closed, but they're square. So they're uh, kind of like what we saw at Adams. That's right, Ex- exactly right. So you, you find both of those in, in the UK. You find open ones yeah. and closed ones. But they're often square. Um, and you say they croisin the beer. So what does that refer to? So they uh, they use uh, fermenting beer to uh, finish the beer, which will which will um, carbonate the beer naturally. Uh. It's an old it's an old German technique common uh, German technique and uh, they also use a cool ship you can go see the brewery it is one of the prettiest breweries in the world Um, I've only seen pictures but (laughs) it's awesome so you get to see the cool ship uh, which is I think really important because the whole steam beer mythos Mm -hmm. but their uh, hop room also looks like an English hop room it's got these little like wooden bays where they just put the sacks of malt uh, sacks of hop and um not refrigerated just like it is in the UK <laughs> probably not a good idea but anyway it's not they don't use a lot of hops in their famous beers anyway so um, uh, and then it's just got a beautiful copper brew house really really pretty um, so if you're in San Francisco it's uh, I don't know where I don't know anything about San Francisco but it's it's not it's in San Francisco yes so it's easy to get to uh, you right here that Fritz made a mistake of trademarking. Yeah. So tell me about that. So this is, I'm going to tell you what happened and then I'm going to throw it to you uh, <laughs> as an economist because this is my last little note and it's my beeronomics. Yeah, I don't know anything about comment. this. Comment. Um, 
so he did. In, in 1978, he trademarked steam beer, which is why no, but there's no other steam beers. It's not like there's no Widmer steam beer. There's no Deschutes steam so you beer. You trademark the name. Like, no one else can call their beer steam beer. Right. Uh, you can't. You can't trademark the uh, recipe, right. which is a thing that goes into cuisine and a bunch of other stuff. Yes. I don't, there's a long history of trademark law there that I don't, yeah. I'm not going to talk too much about. Yeah. But he trademarked the name, and I think that was, uh, it, it, you know, it's 1978. He doesn't know anything about how the beer market is going to evolve or, or change. But what it meant is that uh, all these little breweries that started opening would not brew steam beer. Right. And they wouldn't, therefore, bring attention back to they the original. popularize the style. That's right. Uh. So he got, he got the, the Could be the drinking whole, steam IPA instead of cold IPA. Yeah. <laughs> he got the whole thing, but then it was really marginalized. And yeah. I feel like he always, I, I feel like if I could go back and in time and say don't do it don't do it you know you're gonna I think you're gonna be able to build a juggernaut and it's gonna bring so much attention to San Francisco yeah. and your brewery and all this stuff but I'm curious do you know much about business and, and how that it, like is there a is that is that is there a, a concept about well I think markets it get, and all that well I don't know I can't speak too wise about it but I think it gets back down to just this idea of information as a key component of of markets and in this case um if you're marketing something called steam beer and consumers don't know what that is, um, then it doesn't help you very much, especially if you're trying to expand. You're basically trying to get new consumers. So I think it, I, I agree. I think it would be a lot better to, to, to be the original steam beer rather than the only steam beer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think, I think what we've seen in the growth of uh, craft beer proves it uh, in the sense that, you know, IPA became a thing and then every everybody started drinking and making IPA and wanting IPA and it sort of had that self-reinforcing process. And so, um, uh, uh, um, this is one of these complementarities where if, if the brewer down the street makes a great IPA, consumers will come to my brewery and ask for an IPA as well. Right. And so I think it's much more compliment, uh, much more of a compliment than a substitute. So I agree. Yeah. That was probably a big mistake. Uh, since we have, since I bombed through that really fast, I will tell you one other fascinating Fritz Maytag trademark story. Yes. Well, it's not really a trademark story, but it's a it's a government story. So he uh, invented uh, foghorn barley wine at some point, or didn't invent it, but you know, created it. Yes, he created his foghorn barley wine, and he submitted it to the TTB or whatever the agency was at the time, and they sent it back and said, "No, uh, we can't give you this label because um, people might confuse it with grape wine." <laughs> which is astounding to think of now. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in the UK, barley wine is two words, which is how he submitted it. Right. And he had he had done research. Another great thing about this brewery and Fritz is he, you know, he he revived a ton of beers that would become really important in the early craft brewing uh, period. He, you know, he made a pale ale, he made a porter, uh, he made a barley wine, and if you looked at all the the original little breweries that started. Uh, in the first 15 years of craft brewing, they all followed this this model, and they made beers very much like like Anchor. Um, so he resubmitted it as Foghorn Barley Wine, one, one word, word. <laughs> and they accepted it, and that became the barley wine uh, that everybody knows. And so now, if you see the word barley wine with, with as one word, it's almost certainly an American, and if you see it with two words, it's almost certainly a, a UK person writing about it, or yeah. somewhere else in the world. And if you find it in the U.S., almost certainly it'll be written as one word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, that's that's uh, 
a Fritz and uh, government story. Then. So just to put a coda on the on the anchor story, uh, it was bought by Sapporo a few years ago. That's right. Um, how many years ago? I'm trying to remember. Not that long ago, right? I would say between five and ten. Yeah. I had to guess. Okay. <laughs> well, that's sort of consistent with my bad memory too. Yeah. So uh, it seems like it. It had. There's the COVID lacuna, which throws it, everything it, it off. It does throw everything off. It's and then when I think back, how long it's been since the beginning of COVID, I think, oh my gosh, has yeah. it really been that long? And in the way before COVID, or it was, it was definitely before COVID, yeah. which is almost three years ago that that started. So. And they've gone through this whole rebranding, so the old familiar kind of artsy labels are gone and now these big bold simple colored labels which is good I think in some senses but I complained at some point um, that I thought they really ought to lean into being like the San Francisco brewery and they're kind of and they're kind of losing it if you if you go to San Francisco now there's a bunch of craft breweries in the city and many of them have leaned into San Francisco in fact one of them I think it's called San Francisco Brewing Golden Gate Brewing so anyway um, and using lots of iconography and stuff like that's another missed yeah that's another you should be the brewery like. yeah 19th century San Francisco brewery exactly like totally to the root so and uh, credit to the credit to Sapporo for not completely squelching the nascent uh, union effort there although they kind of tried and then backed off when it became very uh, unpopular and uh, union or anchor is now a union shop, which is pretty yep. cool. So it says it somewhere. Maybe it was just on the box I bought. It uh-huh. said union brewed or something like that. So that's yeah. cool. Like that, that is. Oh, the, here you go. Union made in San Francisco. There you go. Not so common. Uh, brewing is a hard life, and it's great to see people. Uh, yeah, and trying to survive on a brewer's salary in San Francisco. That's right. Particularly hard. <laughs> so I can totally, totally understand why there's a union effort there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. It's been enjoyable. To, I haven't had one in a while. I haven't either. And oh, and the co- the thing that we foreshadowed, we should talk about. This brewery seems like it may be in trouble, and this this beer may be in trouble. This used to be a beer that you would find in every grocery Everywhere. store in America. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I feel like until relatively recently that was the case. You'd always be able to find Ankerstein. Yeah. Um, or Liberty Ale or something. Yeah. But now, not so much. So. Uh, it would be interesting for folks in the rest of the country to know what your experience are. Can you guys still find Anchor Steam? Is it just a Portland thing? or Because I'm curious to know how they're doing. I, I, I fear that they are, uh, that maybe Sapporo didn't really know how to market this brewery, and um, I'm worried about them. So, yeah. 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 Me too. Uh, well, the one good thing we have is um, a lot of. We have a giant mailbag. Oh, so thank you, everybody. Yes. Giant mailbag is what we want. Uh, so, turning to the mailbag. How are we doing on time? We're doing well. All right. Okay, we're fine. Yeah. So, you remember that in our podcast, uh, our last podcast, we talked about uh, Pat Woodward, uh, who asked a question about fresh hops yes. in our fresh hop podcast. Of course. Hi, Pat. Uh, he actually asked two questions. And this is his second question. All right. Uh, he is from somewhere in Ohio, which I didn't write down here, but, um, do you want to, you should read this one since I've been talking all this time. Anyway, that's, that's Pat. All right. As I understand it, forced carbonation is not permitted by the, uh, Hein, <laughs> Reinheitsgebot. Sure. Something like that. Reinheitsgebot. Do you actually <laughs> pronounce the R? Reinheitsgebot. 
Okay. I don't know. You sound like you're on Hogan's Heroes, though, so I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys nailed the German accent. That's right. Uh, so this isn't an, e- isn't an issue uh, for German brewers. I know that Krausening is widely used in Germany for carbonation, but some of the details are not clear, and I thought you might be able to clarify. Ah. Yeah, this See, actually relates to the Krausening thing. Yeah, 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 there you go. Do you know if the Germans add the unfermented wort at the time of bottling so the carbonation occurs in the bottle, or they croisen, uh, is it croisen, right? Croisen and then put the beer in a tank that doesn't fully release CO2, i.e. equipped with a spunding valve, and then package already carbonated beer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it would be permissible to capture CO2 from primary fermentation, store it, and then basically force carbonate with captured CO2. Is that practiced used? So uh, at some point in some past podcast, we were talking about CO2 shortage and the dying volcano in Mississippi or the volcano that's now producing poisoned CO2. Uh, which I believe is where the st- yes, source the of the CO2 thing. shortage, what are we going to do? Um, but this one is a little bit different because uh, if you can't force the carbonate anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so the, so the answer is, uh, yes, they do all of that stuff. Um, in Germany, Reinheitsgebot does not allow you to use artificial f- sources of carbonation. So um, you can do a bunch of different stuff, and all of these techniques are used. Um, the... The so the first question is croisoning. Does croisoning happen in the bottle or in a tank? It can happen in both places. Okay. So uh, the most classic way to make a vice beer mm-hmm. is you add Speise, which it means food in mm-hmm. German, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> please, please, <laughs> Taylor, help? please, please correct <laughs> me. Uh, and you don't even put it in a you you uh, you dose. You dose the beer before it, it goes into it goes from primary fermentation. You dose it, and then boom, you put it in a bottle, and off it goes. Uh, you can also do that in a tank, and then if you've got a big brewery, you can capture the CO2 coming off the uh, the beer, which we've also talked about. Um, but it, it's a kind of an expensive thing. It's like a seventy-five thousand dollar piece of equipment to cap just to capture the CO2. So it's a big capital. Uh, investment that most breweries outside the uh, outside of Germany haven't seen the benefit of doing that. Right. I don't think CO2 is that But expensive. legit under Reinheitsgebot. Yeah, but it's legit under Reinheitsgebot. So if, you, if you're dealing with a lot of beer uh, and you want to force carbonate, it's a lot easier to just right. grab that stuff when it's coming out of the beer. Store it and then use it later. Yeah. Alright. Well, thank you for the question, Pat. Uh, should I go next? Yep. May Shum of New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, hi, May. Yep. Uh, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> uh, I just read an article about uh, Kamikatsu, Japan, a municipality committed to zero waste. It has a brewery called Rise and Win Brewing Company that brews two types of zero waste craft beer. Excerpt coffee below. Thank you for that. Description omitted in parentheses. Thank you for that. <laughs> so you're going to have to describe. We'd love to hear any insights you have on zero waste or eco-friendly brewing uh, going on in the United States as well. Might be a cool episode if you haven't covered it already. Yeah. I mean, this is a big thing, so I don't remember the details, honestly, of the, the Japanese thing. But um, there, it, the, beer is incredibly not enviro. It's just, <laughs> it takes a lot. a lot of water, a lot of energy. Yeah. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about how beer is heavy, and so moving it around is a lot of energy. Packaging's bad, packaging. Packaging, yeah, there's so much stuff. It's very, it's just, you know, as, as the, the world's uh, ecology becomes more and more ten- tentative, um, 
it's it's definitely a big issue uh and I, it's one that i think many breweries are aware of so there's a lot of different examples of technologies that are breweries are using um more and more we're seeing breweries use uh composters or biogas producers so we saw the first time i ever saw it uh, was when we visited Adnams and they had installed one of these things. So you throw out your spent grains and stuff, and it's it like kicks. a biodigester, and then you capture the methane. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing. Many breweries will have uh, uh, solar arrays. Um, many use a bunch of water-saving techniques, um, and and you can you know drive. So like if you're just a brewery that doesn't care anything at all about water savings, it's going to take you about eight gallons, uh, eight parts to make one part of beer, right. eight, eight parts of water to make one part of beer. Yeah. You can drive that down to two or below mm-hmm. if you use all these different kinds of water saving techniques. Um, so, you know, there there are some cool things that you can do. Uh, and yeah, that would actually be a good podcast. Maybe we should do that sometime. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that just occurred to me is that uh, um, sort of popular, and I mean, not so popular, you see it everywhere, but uh, among the things in Portland that are popular are these zero packaging stores. Yeah. So you go in with your little bottle and you can get like olive oil, you can get cleaning fluid or you can get, right. And so that also, uh, is, um, relevant to beer. If you can go right to the source and, and be served right out of the tank, for example, uh, then you're cutting out a lot of waste right there. Which if you go to a brewery, you may it may be that that easy because uh, many breweries I don't I'm not sure how many people know about, about this don't even uh, keg their beer up they just put it in a tank that is designed for free you know like their flagship IPA mm-hmm. um, that goes straight from a tank into the the tap so right yeah that's With a, a little CO2 line right. attached and yeah it's a very efficient uh, way to serve beer so yeah it's yeah. good there's a lot of there's a lot of things you can do and there it's <laughs> as with most public policy uh there's not one silver bullet but if you start adding these things up if you do that and you have uh, a biogas thing and you have uh, a solar array and yeah. you know all these things then there was a time by the way speaking of which there was a time when crowler growl, growlers and growler fill stores were very popular and that has kind of died off it has. Um, so that's interesting because that was sort of a similar idea. You bring your own bottle and fill it up. Yeah. I think cans. Did cans kill growlers? Cans killed growlers. Crowlers, you can get the, you know, they can seal a can for you at the bar top, right? And so yeah. they can put it there. But I just think that whole kind of movement is a bit gone and that might be just due to the regular cans that are so easy to deal with. Yeah. yeah. All right. Should I read the next one? I think you've read. I forced you to read. You should read the next one from my kin, uh, my kindred spirit in Wisconsin. Yeah, Lee Reiheiser, Reiherzer. Reiherzer. Oh yeah, Reiherzer. I'm sure Uh, it's. I'm sure we're both wrong. So that's right. Correct us, Lee, when you have a chance. He's from Oshkosh, uh, and he was commenting on our discussion about um, breweries as restaurants. Mm -hmm. So he notes. Oshkosh, like much of Wisconsin, has a tradition of saloons and taverns providing much of the foundation of social life. The corner bar here was once omnipresent, but that's changing as local tavern culture fades. Meanwhile, the breweries here seem to be stepping into that role that used to be reserved for the taverns. Mm. Oshkosh has a population of 67,000 and has three brewery tap rooms. Each of them is populated to a significant degree by a regular, in quotes, clientele, much like you would see in a neighborhood tavern. 
familiarity, at least as it applies to sense of place, seems to be more important than novelty. Mm. I suspect this may be a phenomenon more common in smaller Midwestern cities with a long history of tavern culture. So, I thought, I this is really in my wheelhouse because it's a cultural question, but um, you're uh, among the many places you called home. Uh, you're a Wisconsin guy, and this is definitely, the Corner Tavern is definitely a big deal in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was the deal. I mean, it was just, as he says, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. And you'd have, you know, each one would have its array of Pabst, uh, Miller, Schlitz, you know, <laughs> taps, Blatz. lining Google Blatz, yeah. <laughs> lining Googles. Uh, so uh, that just gets back to the sort of variety versus familiarity. Now, of course, craft beer has exploded in variety. Um, but I find that fascinating that the comment that um, the one thing about, and in fact, um, when we did our fresh hop uh, beers, I said, well, let's just go to a big tap house instead of a uh, brew pub because right. of exactly that at a tap house you're going to get a whole bunch of variety so I tend not to go back to the same brew pub over and over again but what that means is that I don't sort of build a community or uh, at, at any one place yeah I, so when I read this one of the things that sprang to my mind was that this is one of the rare ways in which Portland and Wisconsin are similar Portland still has a pretty impressive network of corner taverns mm-hmm. uh, and the, the shift there is that uh, instead of so Lee mentioned that people don't go to the corner tavern anymore they go to the brewery and I'm guessing they're probably not as focused on IPAs and smoothie sours and all that stuff so they're probably drinking more regular beers yeah. but the sort of the opposite has happened in Portland where the corner tavern and tap rooms that are sort of have a vibe of a dive bar we'll have fire out tap list yeah yeah we'll have these amazing tap lists yeah. so people want the good beer but they like the the cozy kind of old school comfort of a dive bar you yeah. know the feeling of the corner tavern um so i think it's kind of a you know goes <laughs> goes both directions that way it's really true so my neighborhood's a great example because uh we have three old 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 places shout out to k's and cosmopolitan lounge and limelight uh and a laurel great dive bar names. great di- they're great <laughs> and all three of them are great places uh and like that's where people i know want to go that's when we play soccer and we go have a beer after a soccer game we hit one of those places um uh, and there was a an outpost of a local brewery, Laurelwood, that opened up there, and it and it lasted for a while and did fine, but then left. And you know, so these 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 bars have been there for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. I, I think Kay's has been there for the longest, right? Um, uh, and they persist, which is a really interesting part of Portland culture. And I think there's something about the antiseptic quality of many tap rooms that I personally don't love. And yeah. a dive bar, even if it's kind of scuzzy and seedy, uh, has a lived in quality. You feel the, the decades of life that is, yeah. that, that's happened there and they don't look like an English pub. You know, they're not, they're not gorgeous in, in that way. There's not the, the wood and the brass. Yeah. Um, and yet there's something of the spirit of, the classic pubs uh, of, of Europe uh, that live in a dive bar that, uh, for some reason, 
craft breweries haven't done a great job of re- recreating. And the thing is, you can't. I mean, if you tried to put in vinyl booths and stuff, it just would seem incongruous in a tap room. And yeah, there is kind of a tap room template or a brew pub template yeah. that you you know you can change the finishes and stuff. But it's sort of you kind of it's very similar. You know, you got your chalkboard behind the bar with all your beers. It's <laughs> just like I could kind of name off a whole bunch of iconic things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that the and I think maybe. Uh, Lee hits on something which is for us you don't get that familiarity in most places because people are coming through and checking out the new beers and then going on to the next place That's I think right. the one place you get the same familiar crowd is is these little corner bars um and that's certainly true in my neighborhood if I want to if I if I run into people I know it's always in those places right yeah, it's a great it's a great reflection. I'd be interested to hear what other people in other parts of the world think. And I, you know, that. human human beings are social creatures, and I think we more than anything else we we crave social interactions. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think the the being of the regular, especially if you're not like a super beer nerd, the being of a regular and having the same beer is outweighs you know meeting your friends or meeting the same people over and over again outweighs the novelty of a new beer. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and and you you know you can't have some new beers in those places too so it doesn't have to be either or yeah but i think about that i'm i'm sort of slowly moving away from i i don't like to be too peripatetic and any one evening i don't really like bouncing around right and so i'm sort of slowly morphing towards going to a place that will offer me a lot of variety in one place and rather being in one place than so if it's just a tap room that has you know a couple of beers a few a couple of them that I think I would like, then I might try like a tap room or a or a corner bar or something. So, anyway, we should probably move on All right. to John Newman, in right here in Portland, who writes, "I found this op- unopened short case of Blitz in my dad's pantry. Excellent." Yes. Uh, you said photo with a bunch of numbers. What he included that? a photo with a bunch of numbers on it. What does that mean? The numbers. Keep reading. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have no idea how old this is, but looking at the pictures, is it possible to assume June of '83? That's based on the old numbers. Uh, I see. I see. I see. So he's taking pictures of the numbers on the bottles. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. These are bottles, and I was told uh, I could have some to sample. I'm actually wondering: is this safe to try? <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts? Well, when we were at, was it Green King? Yes. So when we were at Green King and we were being shown the cellars, and literally this is the cellars of a Victorian era brewery, like pre-Edwardian, yeah, Edwardian era brewery. So we're, and they have the craziest old stuff like shoved in the corners. Yeah, and he was handing us stuff. Here, try this. Try that. uh, And we and we wandered over to a a moldy old box or wooden box or something and grabbed what was it? You got to remember. You got to remind me. Well, there were. He gave us. He gave us. A few bottles. So one was called uh, Audit Ale. That's it. That's the one. Audit Ale. The Audit Ale. Yeah. Uh, which I don't remember that much about. There's, that's a thing in Britain. Uh, which had I known this was going to come up, I would have like done some research. <laughs> okay. But it's like a student thing or something in beer. I don't know. I can't remember what the story is. But uh, but the point was, it was an incredibly old bottle of beer. And of course, you and I, the first thing, let's open it and let's try it. Yeah. And it was horrible. It was oxidized and gross. And it, and the and it it was it was it had a crown, and the crown had gotten it turned it metallic, as I recall. So 
that's yeah, that could was, be a problem. It was disgusting, but but not not I dangerous. Didn't, well, I didn't worry about any pathogens. Yeah, <laughs> not dangerous at all. And, and except for the lead-lined bottle. That that, was, <laughs> that's right. If they're they're very old, maybe you have some concern. Um, and John, I looked at that bottle and uh, or the, the the numbers on that case, and I have no idea if that was eighty-three. Could obviously could have been eighty-three, but I I have no idea how to interpret those numbers. You'd have to find somebody who worked at the brewery to know how to interpret them. There there were two numbers in there that said eighty-three, but when I don't know. If that, what that when meant. did the brewery stop brewing Blitz? Because I just remember Henry Weinhardt's. Oh. oh they were brewing until it closed. Until the, the end. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't so it could be slightly newer than that. But. Yeah, it won't be good. Let's be really clear. <laughs> it's not going to be a good beer. <laughs> but <laughs> it could be interesting. <laughs> I was going to say, it takes, a good, it takes a bad beer and turns it into a good one in enough time. Uh, no, that doesn't happen with light lagers. But it could no. be interesting. I would definitely drink it. Yeah, I wouldn't be worried. I would try it. It would be fun. Yeah. You totally. should try it and let us know. Uh, and if you get sick, it wasn't our fault. We're not professional doctors. We don't know anything about biochemistry and <laughs> right. hard metals and anything else. So yes. that's our disclaimer. Try it at your own risk. But go try it. Yeah, definitely, definitely try, try it. it until <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. The last one is from Toby Krempel up in Seattle. And he was talking about our Headwinds article. Uh, uh, and he was... Um, he's, podcast. Or Headwinds uh, podcast. Yes, podcast. Sorry. Uh He's focusing in on the inflation issue. Uh, I've been a sales rep for a small Seattle brewery for two years. This is edited for brevity, by the way. This is a good question. Uh, like so many breweries who all saw our ingredients, labors, uh, and fuel utility costs increase this year, we had to make adjustments in our pricing to accommodate, and the impact on overall sales volume was minimal. Mm. Service and attention are primary drivers of loyalty among breweries. If there's an account uncomfortable with the price increase, we can offer to waive their keg deposits, or, or make a point to visit them ahead of time with new seasonals so they get the first pick on new releases and so on. We also accommodate last-minute deliveries fairly easily, whereas major distributors only offer a few delivery dates per month. So I guess at face value, a wholesale price increase of around 8% hasn't really impacted sales since those accounts are seeing the same increase among all other self-distributed breweries as well. Since their business model is based on maintaining a wide variety of unique and craft beer, uh, their customers understand that their selection comes at a higher price than buying macro lagers and IPAs from another retailer. So he hasn't, they've been raising their prices, but so far hasn't impacted sales. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad to hear it. Me too. Uh, because um, this is where, again, uh, a 10% increase on a $5 six-pack is different than a 10% increase on a $12 six-pack, and so people might start... Right. You might be start start to hit people's ceilings rather than cut back on beer they're going to start cutting back on the price of the beer they buy um and so i i i have been worried a little bit about that effect um yeah and there are I have to. you know and obviously bigger breweries have a lot of scale economies and they can come in at a lower price point and they can also probably observe absorb a bit more costs um increases um might have a little bit more flexibility about how they can lower costs through forward future con- futures contracts and things like that so I have been worried about it. I'm glad to hear. Uh, I don't know what else to say other than that. I'm still worried about it if inflation keeps yeah. going. Um, because I think, uh, especially with a tight labor market and increasing wages that have kept up, maybe not entirely, but somewhat. But I think that if inflation sticks around a while longer, and it may well do, probably will do, that you might start seeing a lot of belt tightening and what's happening of course the fed is raising rates so if you have any kind of adjustable rate loan 
those payments are going to go up right. um, as well. And so belt tightening might start pinching high-end craft beer. I think that's right. And I'm glad to hear that uh, at least one small brewery is raising their prices to keep up because this is the kind of thing that will maybe squeeze the producer who doesn't really have space in their margins anyway. They're already, you know, cut, cut down to the bone. So, um, and I know there's that telescoping thing. So you raise your price and the distributor raises the price. This was a self-distributor, but uh, and the retailer raises the price. You know, it can, yeah. it can get expensive quick, but... Um, Self-distribution probably really helps. It at probably, this point. yeah, probably really does. Yeah, and you can be much as 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 the um, letter writer. Sorry, let me go back. As Toby mentions, you can you can be more flexible with and, and sort of respond to their circumstances as well. Yeah, and it's nice that uh, small breweries who self-distribute can offer other benefits uh, as they raise their prices, which I think is one of those. That is one of the advantages of the small breweries. Yeah. Well, I hope that's true in general. Yeah. And uh, good luck to everybody out there dealing with these things. I do hope that you know the Fed's being pretty aggressive right now, and hopefully we'll get a we'll get a handle on inflation. But while there's still chaos in Ukraine and and and, and, uh, and inflation is far from a U- American problem, it's worse in a oh, lot yeah. of places. So oh yeah, um, eurozone inflation was ten percent last yeah. quarter. So um, yeah, it's tough right now. But uh, hang in there, everybody. Yep. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thanks so much for all the emails. Yeah, uh, this great. We, we like to have a fat uh, mail bag. It always makes me feel a little bit more comfortable than trying to bomb in and squeeze something out. And it's nice to know we have a few listeners out there, so yes. <laughs> it's always good to hear from you. It is. It's great. We had uh, a few new commenters, or three new commenters today, so that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, as we just mentioned, we'd love to hear from you. So please send your questions, your comments, your suggestions. Um, send them to jeff at beerbonablog.com via email. That's the easiest way. Or you can reach us on Twitter uh, or on Instagram. Both of those have a handle of at beervonapod. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets and grams uh, at Beernomics and Beervana Pod. Well, I tweet, I tweet at Beernomics, yes, and then I some, and we both contribute to the Beervana Pod. Yeah, we find kind of, we've sort of fallen down on the gramming. We we'll have to get on that. Yeah, but we got some fresh hop picks. That's true. Uh, up there. And, That's true. Uh, may, may Good we'll take, man. And we've, we've, we've consumed all our anchors. And I know. Take a picture. <laughs> oh, we're terrible. I know it is. I was thinking we were about to cheers, and I'm, I'm looking say, at my empty glasses. We can put a nice glam shot of Anchor Steam on there. And nope. <laughs> no. Well, no. I can go back, and, and, and uh, I've got more at home. So oh, there you go. I'll all fix right. that. Yeah. All fix right. it in post. Yeah. All right, Jeff. All right, Patrick. Cheers. cheers. That was terrible. Yeah, Try that, that again. Typical glass. <laughs>